Over the years, there have been a variety of names assigned to people who are frequent users. Some might say chronic users of the healthcare system. Frequent flyers comes to mind. Hot spotters, the five percent accounting for fifty percent of all healthcare costs. While any of these descriptions is apt in its own way, very real human circumstances and healthcare conditions are also in play, and as all of us know, require a lot more than catchphrases. Designating system. And teams to support patients with complex needs can be done and is being done. And most encouraging, solutions are increasingly being figured out with patients rather than for them. So that's what we're going to learn more about on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And also for later listening and convenience, tell everyone via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Matt. Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. We've talked before on WIHI about patients with multiple health and social needs, and it's really exciting to return to this topic with some fresh eyes and fresh developments. And if you like to use Twitter, please tweet away. If you can, use the hashtag IHI in your tweets, or at the IHI is our Twitter handle. That way we bring others into the conversation. We also have a poll running uh, that started at as you were probably getting on board the program today, just some data points about who's with us today in terms of your uh, level of engagement, patients with complex needs. Uh, that poll will uh, stay open for another several minutes, and we'll see if we can't take a look at it before we sign off the program today. If you're only joining us by phone today that you're not, and you're not looking at a computer screen, you can get those questions by emailing info at IHI.org, and you can share your answers by sending it back to that same email address, info at IHI.org. And very shortly, John will post a link uh, in the chat that is uh, already all our resources that we're sharing with you today, and those are going to be posted to IHI.org by tomorrow morning as well. All right, let me now introduce our guests and a reminder that they have longer bios for sure on our own web pages and also on their own organization's web pages as well. Out in California, let's welcome Ann Lindsay. Uh, she is co-director of Stanford Coordinated Care, which is part of Stanford Hospitals and Clinics. SCC is a capitated primary care program for Stanford employees and adult dependents with complex chronic health conditions. Welcome, Dr. Ann Lindsay. Ann, glad you're here. This is your time to chime in, Ann. Are you there? Yes, I am. All right, great. Okay. Still out west, not too far from California, Crispin Kantz is a manager of primary care and chronic disease management with Alberta Health Services and coordinates the Triple AIM portfolio of work in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Excuse me. Welcome, Crispin. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. Fantastic. Dr. John Whittington is lead faculty for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI's Triple AIM initiative. Previously, he worked for many years as a family physician and was also medical director of knowledge management and patient safety officer at OSF Healthcare System. So glad you're here, John. Glad to be with you today, Matt. Okay, great. And Catherine Craig is with us as well. She's an independent consultant in community health transformation and care coordination. Catherine was a founding senior manager of Community Solutions, which is a national nonprofit where she served as the director of Healthy Communities. Catherine joins us from France, where she's residing at the moment. Welcome, Catherine. 
Great to be here, Mitch. All right. We're going to start with you, so we can leave your slide right there. And I was thinking, Catherine, that the last time you were on WIHI, we were talking about upstream interventions and strategies to reduce emergency department visits in the homeless population primarily. So as the first up on today's program, we've given you the job of kind of bringing us a sort of a, a sort of thumbnail sketch of the journey that's been going on. You've been a, very much a part of a lot of AAA working groups looking at some issues. So where where have we gotten to that brings us really to what we're focusing on today? Thanks, Catherine. Great. Well, we're focusing a lot of effort in redesigning care to meet the needs of people who fall in the top cost categories year after year. One thing that we know is that this year's highest cost population will include people who will be lower cost next year. So we're focusing on those who are likely to struggle with the same amount of health needs in the next year. So really the people with the very highest need. Uh, And we can think of those needs as complex. And So we've been using the framework of the triple aim to guide us in this work. So we've been helping teams to improve health outcomes, to drive down overall costs, all while improving people's experience of the care system. That's the framework we've been using to to guide us through this work. And since 2009, we've worked with dozens and dozens of teams who are all redesigning care to fit the complex and various needs of their own high-need patient populations. Um, And we have a little snapshot of some of the groups that are doing this work with us in the current year, but we've worked with... Uh, loads more teams than what you see on the screen. This is just for this year right now. And what we're learning is that organizations face very similar challenges in different contexts. So interventions have to be tailored to the patient population and to the unique social and policy context that the organization is working within. But we've found that we've been able to develop an iterative process to guide teams towards their own great outcomes. And John is going to be able to share more of the details and some strategies with us later in the call. Some of them are outlined on the screen for you right now. So some some takeaways is that we've, we're finding that basically everyone is facing very stark budgets. Everyone has to be creative to figure out ways to deploy enhanced care to meet the needs of people with very complex needs and to wrap that care around the right individuals. Because care enhancement can be pricey, it's really important to carefully target this work to the people with the very most complex needs. And when teams are able to do that, it reaps large dividends, both in lifting overall population health outcomes um, and conserving financial resources. And we're going to be able to share some some great examples um, later in the call. All right. Well, you did that in a roaring just few minutes, uh, Catherine. So we'll we'll uh, we'll circle back to you uh, for sure. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Catherine. Really has a work side by side uh, with John Whittington and probably a number of people even on this call. So we're thrilled that you're with us uh, today. All right, John Whittington. We're going to turn to you next. Um, so uh, Catherine is already starting to say that there is an iterative way one can come at this, and you've begun and continue to refine some guiding principles uh, that can maybe serve as a backdrop and context for us in approaching this population. Um, So fire away. Go ahead, John. Uh, 
<clears throat> Thanks, Madge. So, uh, as Catherine said, and I think most of you on the audience uh, know that this complex pa- patient group um, needs a lot of help. They consume a lot of resources, and really the question is how to provide care in a really broad sense uh, to serve this population and do it in a cost-effective manner. One of the great opportunities we've had over the years is for the triple aim is working with about 100 overall through the years now we've worked with about 150 different organizations across the world um, uh, and many of them have actually had a focus on the, the, the complex the high risk the high cost whatever you'd like to call it uh, group and so what we're what I'm going to talk about is just sort of practical experience from working with these organizations different methods that they've approached it but we're trying to boil it down some of the ways I'll describe things need more detail detail, I would say they're sort of caricatures of the real life thing. As Catherine alluded to, we have actually built a pretty decent change package. That's IHI's way of tackling problems, thinking about what are the key changes you have to make. And so I'm going to talk about that in a moment. I think one of the things I'd like you to think about, though, ahead of time is there are a set of principles that I think you need to look at or consider as you do this work, and that's what's up on the slide. First of all, I'll just say it. Anyone can figure out last year's costs. It's pretty straightforward if you can get your hands on the data. The question really is, who are the high-risk, high-needs people now moving forward? Um, as you look at the slides and look at issues around high-risk, high-cost, you actually see that people who are real high-cost one year may not be real high-cost the next year. And so, really, part of the whole strategy is can you identify these people? Great. So if you can identify these people moving forward, and there's different strategies to use to identify. People use predictive modeling. People use categorical things like somebody who's been in the emergency room five times or hospitalized twice. Uh, or people will often use some sort of methodology asking clinicians about who they think are high risk. In any case, there are different ways to identify the population. But once you've identified what you think is a high-risk population, you've got to determine the impactability. How likely are you to actually make a difference for the care of this person? And that becomes really important because we have scarce resources. And you really have to think about um, cost-effectiveness, then, of these interventions that you're going to design. It's easy to provide lots of resources for people and to make a difference in their health care and their outcomes. You have to do this, though, in a cost-effective manner. And then potential interventions or redesigns. What we are currently doing, if, if we were all happy with what we are currently doing, we wouldn't be on the call today. We wouldn't be here working on this. We would all say this is what you need to do and just do it. So it's a work in progress for all of us. So when I think about this, the, the key aspects then of the system design considerations for complex patients, what we've got now are five major areas to focus on. And... Um, such, such as population selection, that's a key aspect. The, the high-risk, high-cost group, the complex patients, are not one homogeneous population. They actually represent uh, several different populations. And people have to say, well, which is the one that we want to focus on? I guarantee on this call that many of you represent different slices of the group, but it's important to figure out who you want to work with. And so as we work with organizations, we try to figure out what is the, the core content, the key changes that they need to do, and that's what these five things represent. So we select your population. And then we think you need to really think carefully about your care system design, and these are caricatures. One methodology we've seen is the ambulatory ICU 
that's where you have a physician or a nurse practitioner taking care of a very small panel of patients supported by social work, pharmacy, community health workers, all in one team uh, uh, working together on, typically under one office setting. The other way we've seen this work is actually taking slightly different tact where you keep primary care doing its thing but then you wrap around community-level services, often with a community outreach worker, going into homes, uh, working with individuals, and then connecting them back to both the primary care team but also community resources. And then we see perturbations of both. It's really, this next part is really important. It's how do you identify these people, and then how do you actually recruit them into your system? And quite honestly, recruitment and engagement are one and the same in a certain sense. I mean, after you've identified people and you're starting to help help them to come into your system, that's the beginnings of engagement. And engagement really, maybe an easy way to think about engagement is how do you carefully craft a well-thought-out plan for these individuals that you and them co-create together to make a difference. And then these are complex individuals, so what we've learned is you've got to work with your community. Great. That's the content. And the next slide I'm going to show you really deals with how do we actually work with organizations? In other words, fine. They know the content, but you still got to start somewhere. And we know you're on different spectrums. Some of you may be at the level of you're working with 100 or 500 individuals. Some of you may be uh, earlier on. And the way we do this is actually... Uh, parallel to the content area, we think the first thing you do is you sort of identify your high-risk population. Secondly, you start to explore in a detailed way, gaining knowledge from this population. One way we love to do it is just to interview people, look at the data, talk to clinicians. And then to gain even more knowledge, work with five individuals in your community who have this particular characteristic that you're working on and actually work with them to actually craft a plan and then execute the plan. Don't worry about system design at this stage. You're still trying to learn your way through it. The next step is really about then taking the information you've gained from these first three steps and starting to actually craft your care design model. And then lastly, what we actually do is use this kind of idea of 5x scale up, which simply means work with 5, work with 25, work with 125, work with 625, etc. Each time you jump up, you think about structural issues such as information technology or physical location or financial models to continue to learn your way through this. We've used this model with many teams, and this has been a successful way. Back to you, Matt. All right. Thanks so much, John. And so what you're all uh, getting from John Whittington and Catherine Craig uh, is a kind of a, you know, 30,000-foot uh, lessons and some, you know, high-level um, findings uh, that we're now going to try and illustrate. Uh, what does it all look like in practice? And John alluded to the fact that IHI and others have been working with over 140 different entities over the last several years. So there are many stories. Uh, we've got two for you today that we think really does illustrate what can uh, be possible with patients with complex needs. So I'm going to turn right now to Crispin Kantz, uh in Edmonton, and we're going to go zeroing in even more to East Edmonton. And Crispin, uh, sort of take us there <laughs> in a Google Earth sort of way and uh, describe the work that you've been doing, which uh, from the, our planning calls has seemed so interesting. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Madge. Um, yes, I'm from Alberta Health Services in Edmonton, Alberta. Um, if you move to the next slide. All right, we'll get there. Keep going. Okay. <laughs> uh, to situate yeah. you, yeah. Uh, we yeah. are north of Montana, just east of the Rocky Mountains. Alberta is roughly the size of Texas with a population of about 4 million people. 
Uh, this province in Canada has one health authority, Alberta Health Services, and uh, Alberta Health Services is responsible to deliver health care to all Albertans. Primary care providers are uh, relatively autonomous within this system. Um, if you could move to the next slide, please. Uh, okay. Here we go. It's coming. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so the Edmonton area has about one million people. And our work to improve health, improve experience of care, and reduce healthcare costs is focused on the inner northeast part of the city. This part of the city has the lowest socioeconomic status and the highest health risks. Um, it's where there are the most people who are homeless or unstably housed, which is truly no joke when the temperature reaches minus 30 degrees Celsius, and that's minus 22 Fahrenheit uh, for those of you in the States. Um, and it did that several times this winter. Mm. Eastwood, uh, with 74,000 people, um, it's not a self-identified community, but we chose this because it's the smallest unit for which we have population health data that covers this area. And our target of 4,600 people were identified by Alberta Health Services, um, analyzing individuals with complex high needs and high costs in the health system, and that's the number that was identified for this part of town. So it's about 6% of this particular population. For the triple aim work, uh, we started with people who had the highest visits to emergency departments. Um, and we are not yet able um, in any kind of scientific way to predict high utilization, um, though, um, as John suggested, um, it is certainly something we're concerned about and something that Alberta Health Services is working on. When we looked for root causes uh, amongst this population, um, the impacts of the determinants of health were an obvious factor, um, as well as the silos that we work in. Um, that makes the work complex for us, but it makes people who receive care uh, feel disrespected and alien sometimes. Many of the individuals um, that we work with identified a primary care provider, but they didn't have a close relationship with that person. And our system also doesn't provide easy communication between hospitals and primary and community care uh, that could potentially help to overcome those silos. Moving to the right-hand side of the slide, um, the individuals that we identified with the high... Uh, could you go back? Yeah, we're going back. Um, Sorry about that. Go ahead. Yep. Um, Next one. Sorry, John. Here yeah. we go. We're back to the portfolio <laughs> okay. project. Sorry. We're with you. We yeah, promise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no problem. Um, so our top five people um, all had chronic diseases and substance abuse and mental health diagnoses. Uh, so our mental health team and mental health and addictions team and our home living team, the home care team, uh, were the ones who were most involved in working with the top five people, uh, co-creating care plans with them and also working with other community partners. Um, where we are now, uh, we're working on designing service models for this work. Uh, we're working on scaling up, and you can see the numbers in brackets there. You can see the numbers that we're reaching. Um, and um, also working on um, trying to address some of the system barriers that we've identified in the work. Um, the next slide, please. Okay, Joe's story. Now we'll get there. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. I would like to introduce Joe to you. Um, 
the text there on the left um, talks about the services that Joe received. Um, Joe is actually not his real name, uh, but he uh, has been one of the highest users of emergency and inpatient services. And like Joe, all of the top five people showed a significant drop in both emergency and inpatient visits after the team started uh, with assertive outreach and engagement with them. Um, After one year, four of them have housing. This photo was typical of Joe's sleeping arrangements before he got involved with um, our triple aim work. Um, The addictions and mental health case manager was able to form a relationship with Joe uh, over time, and a key element of making the relationship work was having the mandate to work with Joe on what was important to him, even if it was outside the usual scope of work for that clinician. Uh, For example, connecting him with a volunteer service to help file his taxes so that he could apply for income assistance. Housing, you can see, was a huge priority for Joe. The available housing options didn't fit him well, so the teams worked with a shelter to set up long-term interim housing for Joe, which required contract dollars as well as ongoing support services and ongoing negotiation with the shelter staff. There was ongoing work to achieve timely communication between hospital and community services as Joe's health status was unstable. Joe felt like he had a home at the shelter. Uh, When he had health crises and went to hospital, uh, he still left against medical advice, which he had been doing for years, but now he made his way back to the shelter, even if it was from the other side of town. And for the first time in years, uh, Joe felt like he could have belongings because he felt had a home. Um, In January this year, he bought a leather jacket and a radio. Um, Joe died of liver failure in late February. Um, But in these two years, uh, he taught us a great deal about what it takes to change the trajectory of how a person with really complex issues uses healthcare services. We feel like we're kind of at the toddler stage in this work, uh, but it's very rewarding and we're really looking forward to moving on with it. Crispin, thank you very much uh, for telling us about the work that's going on uh, in Edmonton and for telling us uh, Joe's story. Um, it's certainly very, it puts a very human face to all of this. So I really appreciate that. Um, okay, stand by. Uh, we'll come back to everybody in the Q&A part of the program. We're going to now um, go to Ann Lindsay uh, out in California to tell us about Stanford Coordinated Care. And um, I had the good fortune at um, IHI's most recent summit just outside D.C. to sit in a room for three to four hours and uh, have all the team members, uh, all the folks that Ann works with, tell us about this very unique program. And we've asked Ann to do the impossible, which is to boil it down into, you know, maybe six minutes or so. Um, So, Ann, take it away. I'm glad you're here. Okay, next slide, please. Okay, and we'll advance the slides. Don't worry about it. Okay, here we go. Okay. Uh, Dr. Alan Glasshoff and I were brought to Stanford two years ago to achieve the triple aim with the high-risk, high-cost employees and dependents in Stanford's self-insured health plan. And um, you know, we, we, um, it's, we are fully capitated in our clinic, so it's given us freedom to design services that the patients told us that they needed. And um, since the average cost for the top, high top 
uh, patients was about $60,000 a year or more, uh, we felt we could um, really make an impact. Um, we, we actually, in primary care at that point, was only 3% of the, um, of the healthcare spend at Stanford. So we are focused. We have a, a dual program at uh, both of the levels that John talked about. We, um, but we d- designed our services by starting with interviewing 35 people, who uh, Stanford employees with complex chronic conditions, and um, then they told us what they needed, and and, um, we have continued to engage eight of them as um, patient advisors who meet monthly. We have a primary care plus program that focusing on the top 10%. Uh, that we identify initially by using claims data and looking at the prospective risk and current risk and the uh, DXCG score of 2.5 or more, so an average spend two and a half times higher than um, than the average. But we've actually, um, most of our patients now come in through word of mouth from satisfied patients, so we rely on the HARMS 8 tool that was developed by Care Oregon, uh, which it basically asks, you know, are, how do you feel? How many specialists do you have? How many medications you're on? Have you been in the hospital emergency room? And do you think you're going to be in there? And how competent, how careful of competent do you feel about taking care of yourself? The care support program is a, a nurse and a social worker who um, meet face to face with uh, patients who have primary care elsewhere, but need the, the wraparound services. So I'll go to the next one. Okay. Is a great the, um, <laughs> the prime question is you know, why wouldn't a person with a chronic condition do everything in their power to live long and feel well and um, we um, really think that the important way to get at that is to really ask patients what are your goals and focus all of our care on the patient's goals first and foremost and promote self-management along the way so next slide um, because of uh, people told us they, and the claims told us that the, uh, depression was a big factor and pain, um, and we knew they were all on a lot of medications, we actually um, hired a, a licensed clinical social worker, a physical therapist who's an expert in pain. She does integrative physical therapy. Um, we have um, um, also a clinical pharmacist uh, who works with medica- medications but also um, treats diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and asthma to target. And um, the key, though, I think it's something that's a little different. We have this medical assistants that we've trained up and given a lot of responsibility, and, for, and they have their own panel of patients, and they're, they're um, called patient care coordinators, and they are the main source of contact with the patients and our clinic team. And um, they, it's been um, an interesting experience for them because it's a lot different than just putting somebody blood pressure, uh, you know, checking their blood pressure and putting them in the room. And um, they, but it's been really important to have kind of somebody more peer-like and more available for patients all the time. Um, we have protocols by which they can do a fair amount of um, you know, medication refills and and ordering tests and things that are and immunizations. But this is their job. Um, they, they're with the patient during the visit. They scribe the visit. They uh, reach out to patients and follow up on their action plan or whatever um, needs to be done to um, for them patients to get navigate their care 
and we did create a new job category and pay scale to reflect the greater skills and responsibilities. And I wish we'd actually pay them more. They're worth a weight in gold. Mm. So um, Alan and I both came from Humboldt County in Northern California before where there's a quite well-developed um, care support program or wraparound program. Here's a case study from there. The gentleman who had had prostate cancer and um, and was, without even thinking about it, signed up for a pretty invasive surgery and um, got every complication in the book where he had excruciating pain, like um, labor pains, and um, also um, it was incontinent of urine and just felt terrible and he couldn't really go to he, you know he had a primary care doctor who couldn't help him and he couldn't really complain to the surgeon because the surgeon saved his life the huh. nurse um care support person or priority care they call it then um you know, talked to him and he had been going to the emergency room just he called the emergency room to see if a new doctor was on duty that he hadn't talked to yet just to get somebody else's opinion um, the nurse really um, focused on him on his goals and um, of you know really he's in pain and um, let him express uh, his anger and disappointment and um, with his care but um, he realized that they had to work he had to really work on they work with him on um, pain management and basically doing um, uh, like labor, uh, uh, Lamaze type breathing to get through things. And, and he, as it began, uh, he basically um, came around and said he really had to focus on living with it rather than trying to figure out a, a magic answer that the answer didn't lie outside him, but he could, had to live the best he could. So that's um, an example and quite a bit of funds were saved in the process, went from um, $41,000 in bill charges over um, a, a period of four months to $2,500 of bill charges over the subsequent four months. Wow. And that's the uh, end of my talk. <laughs> Boy, I don't know. Is that the shortest one we've ever you've ever been asked to give? <laughs> Maybe. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. But I'm looking forward. I think it's more important that a lot of people <laughs> on the line that share their experiences and ask questions. Okay, I'm just going to ask you one other quick info question about how many patients would you say are kind of in your under your care or with you right now in in this uh, in, um, at, at SCC right now. Uh, we have 260 patients now, and most of them are in the primary care program. Okay. And um, we are, we actually are getting every day anecdotal evidence that things are working. You know, people seem to be doing better. We measure the patient activation measure, and people are becoming more um, activated. Uh, we're in, engaged in a formal evaluation process. And we've also learned the value of teamwork, you know, communication and trust and um, protocols, all of to support the patients and what the patients want. Okay. Thank you very much, Ann Lindsay. Really appreciate it. And as you said, we'll get right to discussion. Before we open things up to chat, and John will remind you how to do that, I want to also, of course, thank everyone who's joined today. It's wonderful that you didn't only identify yourself, but you told people a little bit about what you're doing. Uh, you'll all get to take this chat with you. Um, you can download it at the end of the program, get it from info at IHI.org after the show concludes, or find it on our website tomorrow. So 
it's a great resource for all of you. I want to just go back to the top, and Catherine, Craig, don't want to put you on the spot, but I do want to ask you, as you've listened to John and Joe, you know, what's going on in Alberta, Joe's story, uh, and just shared a case study, um, anything you'd like to comment on? Um, these stories, of course, um, are, you know, are worth gold as well in terms of what they can tell us about what's going on. But any observations that you have at all, Catherine? Are you there? Did we lose you? (laughs) (laughs) Oops, sorry. What I hear in all of these stories and what we hear over and over again in the work groups that we run is that we understand when we see these cost patterns that something isn't working in the health care for these individuals. Um, And what we're finding is the very best way of figuring out how to fix this is asking each person what's worked for you in the past and also very clearly asking what hasn't worked for them, where has the system gotten in their way. And when we do that, we're able to click into some pretty clear interventions that we can try out um, using in our new care redesign and transformation. So we're really, what you've heard today, everyone is really going to the source, asking people using the care system themselves, patients themselves, what's worked, where have things fallen apart for you before? You know, what, what work have we done that hasn't worked well for you? And then using that as a launching pad to redesign care. Okay, thanks, Catherine. John, any quick comments before we open up to chat? Um, well, I was actually looking at one of the questions, which is a really important question. Okay. It deals with... It deals with the financial model. So okay. I'm going to go there. All right, great. All right, let me just have John. about it, but. Yes, let, let's go. We can go right to that question. But, John, you want to just give people a quick reminder about the chat. Go ahead. Of course, quick reminder about the chat. Um, uh, make sure that your uh, addresses are sent to all participants um, in the chat field, uh, right where you would choose a name. Make sure it says all participants. That makes sure everybody uh, on the WebEx will be able to see what you're asking. All right, sounds good. Thank you very much, John. And now John Whittington. Go ahead. Uh, uh, you want to just. Uh, for maybe just folks on the phone, just uh, characterize the question for us. Go ahead. Sure. So the question really was, hey, we know care teams work. Who's going to pay for them? All right. And the answer is you, you have to have a business model, a financial model to sustain this work. Somebody somewhere is paying for these individuals. Somebody somewhere is it's costing them a fortune for these individuals. For instance, there are 50 individuals in the city of Los Angeles who spend $25 million in one year on health care. And these kind of stories, you know, repeated and repeated in other places. The point is somebody spent that $25 million somewhere, and what you've got to do is figure out how you can develop a system that will make a difference in a cost-effective manner and then connect your system to the payers. And that's basically how you do it. Now, again, I want to emphasize this idea of cost-effectiveness. You may have a beautiful system, but it really isn't sustainable because you're not achieving the kinds of savings that you need to with these individuals. We didn't put up any graphs today, but we could have, in which you see a huge difference in people on their hospitalizations before and a big difference afterwards in the work that they're doing. 
And you need those kind of changes that impact really the cost, the cost driver for the whole population. So again, it's building that financial model, and that really means I've got to provide, I've got to have providers link with payers in a situation and such that the rewards can come to both. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. I appreciate that, um, John. All right, let me. Um, I'm going to try and group together a couple of other questions and keep them coming, everybody. Some a couple questions for you, Anne Lindsay, uh, at Stanford Coordinated Care. Somebody is asking about a nurse-patient ratio, so feel free to answer that in whatever way makes sense. Others are wondering uh, a little bit about the training, particularly of the non-clinical or, let's say, at the role of um, medical assistant. Uh, And somebody wondered a little bit about, um, if you could say a little bit more about the evaluation uh, that you're undertaking. So let's first start with kind of staffing, uh, nurse-patient ratio, somebody is asking, uh, and some of the, the training involved. Right. I was just typing an answer to that question of staffing because <laughs> I uh, forgot to mention. In the primary care model, we have, um, it's, it takes one, pa- one patient for every, one doctor for every 250 to 300 patients. And uh, care coordinators, it's one to 100 patients. And in the care support program, it's uh, we think the license, the, the RN and licensed clinical social workers, one to one twenty-five, and that ratio is about what they used in Humboldt. And then the other models in California that are having that ratio, one to a hundred to one hundred and twenty-five, and it depends on the acuity of the patients. So that our um, DXCG model, uh, the risk scores or the average in our patients in our clinic is eight. Even I, I said we were recruiting two point five or above. People are very complex and need a lot of time. Okay. But we think it can be cost effective. What about the training for the medical assistants uh, and that expanded role that's happening there? Right. First of all, we re- recruited people who were kind of medical assistants who were kind of bursting at the seams at other clinics and really, t- you know, reaching out and trying to do more with patients. And so that the empathy you can't teach. But the, uh, we had a curriculum with motivational interviewing, um, you know, some work on scribing the visit and learning how the electronic health record and we have um, a case conference every week and we have the medical assistant uh, care coordinators present the new patients and so they get a um, really get a, a experience in learning language and, and uh, communicating with the team and um, there some of the other is you know just disease specific but a lot of that's been um, along the way gathered along the way and because the care coordinators in every visit and and part of the, uh, you know, wrapping up the visit involves the doctor and the care coordinator kind of, uh, and a patient all making the plan from there. So they've learned a lot along the way. Okay, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, and the evaluation that you're embarked on, and then I can see there are a couple little detailed questions that feel free to type in. Some people are asking for some clarification. So, but uh, what kind of evaluation uh, is, is ongoing with SCC? Right. Uh, we're engaged with some top-level um, economics researchers to look at the cost uh, savings, and that we're going to have to use it. You know, since there's a tendency for regression to the mean, we're using a um, you know uh, other statistical methods, not not just looking at our population, but um, a propensity matched, you know, um, from our uh, database that we have from the advisory board. Okay. That we're also looking at the patient activation measure over time, um, and. And, all, and then we have a, a dashboard and, uh, that's going to lead an investigation into some of the clinical
clinical outcomes. And then um, every month we get evaluated by our patients. And I was for the last quarter we had a hundred percent likelihood to recommend, um, you know, based on patient feedback. So um, we think we're we're achieving that end of the triple aim. Okay, thank you very much, Crispin. I'm going to turn to you to to kick off this question. Somebody's asking, uh, how do you measure uh, complexity, uh, and perhaps, or what what might be an operating definition of complexity uh, in in your program. Okay, Madge. Um, we, when we were identifying our population, uh, we didn't actually look for a categorical um, definition of complexity. We started with people who had a lot of visits to the emergency department um, and a lot of inpatient days. And uh, what we found was that those people had chronic diseases and substance abuse issues and mental health issues, and that seemed like plenty complex to us. Um, yeah. So we're we're not using a tool. To okay, do that. you're not using a tool in particular. I'm curious if or there are some equivalents at all. People are very very interested. Uh, the chat always lights up a lot around. Uh, has on some other programs as well around uh, medical assistance. Uh, in this case, at Stanford, uh, they've been you know are being called patient care coordinators. Um, do you use? Uh, is that an important role, or is there something similar in your program? as well. Yes, uh, we're, we're just in the process right now of creating a peer support outreach role. And there was also a question in the chat about graduating. And um, it's not exactly graduating, but we do see a pattern happening of uh, working with a, a more skilled clinician at the beginning of the relationship and then um, building out the support relationships for that individual uh, with other people who are non-traditional healthcare workers. Okay, thank you very much. There's a question also somebody is asking about home visits uh, in these kinds of models. Um, and maybe I'll ping that back to you. And then uh, John or Catherine, maybe feel free to weigh in as well whether uh, we have any kind of um, agility. Is, is this always coming to, you know, is something centered in one location or is there um, some uh, moving about in the community? Uh, but let, let me start with you with Anne. On, on any home visits? Sure. Uh, the nurse in the care support program does home visits after hospitalization, like the as per the Coleman model. Um, but we're not allowed. We're not a home health agency. We're not. Nobody. Uh, the doctor can go, and we doctors do make home visits at times, and um, we can. The doctor can go and provide medical services there, but the care coordinators and the nurses are not allowed to provide medical services, but they can provide social support. And we actually have had a care coordinator go to a home, and and, um, uh, we used a a thing like Skype. It was a secure uh, laptop network, and and Skype back, and, and the doctor directed the visit from afar. Okay. All right. Does SCC work with any particular home agency? Uh, is, is that part of, of the fabric of the system at all? Um, you know, we set that up, but, but um, we actually haven't had home health be, we don't have that many patients. Home health hasn't been a big thing, and, and by and large, our, you know, our patients are all 
Some are faculty still teaching at 80, but most of them are, you know, under 70 or under 65 and, and active. Okay. All right. John, they're dependent. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. What was the last thing you said? Uh, no, but um, by and large, they, they all have, how, unlike um, Crispin's model, are, you know, they all have um, some kind of income and housing. Most of them are housed, uh, you know, so it's a different, their the medical complexity, uh, psychological problems, and, and they're basically post-traumatic stress from the medical system itself are big issues for oh, them. Okay, thank you. John, I actually want to um, go back. Actually, it's a very interesting contrast between and or comparison in terms of SCC and what's going on with Crispin um, that we have on this program today. And I do, I'm wondering, do you agree that sometimes when we say patients with complex needs, uh, that people um, fill in the blank and say in some way um, people who might be more on the margins of, of uh society in one form or another um and you know in some ways um due to the complexity of health and or social conditions and are are we sort of changing now what we mean and has that always been an unfortunate assumption well i mean the typical definition that a lot of organizations are using for good bad or indifferent has something to do with the cost of the population. So you started out, Madge, saying the 5% that's been 50%. And when we look at a population like we've heard today, and I can think of others, uh, Edmonton versus Stanford employees, we're uh, looking at two different types of population. Um, one may be heavier on the medical side of needs. They have more resources, financial resources, and maybe even social resources, but they still have a level of complexity that needs to be supported, and the work that Alan and Ann are doing is terrific in that model and that that population. Then you look at something like what's been going on in Alberta, or I know of some terrific work that's been going on in Oregon, and it's been focused on the Medicaid population. And in that group, you'll see more of the social and uh, behavioral health issues um, and a lot of economic issues. And that takes us, they, they each take, they each have some level of similarity, but they also have a different, different emphasis. So in that model, the other model, when you were asking Alan, and the other model that I've seen a lot of is not so much working within the health system, but using community outreach workers to meet people where they are, in their home, in a pool hall, in an org, in some place wherever they can meet with them, to start working with them. And and I'd say that model, uh, although it uses parts of the medical system, it's a lot more social behavioral type of model, and there's an outreach. People often say to me, well, which is the best, okay? And the answer is it depends upon your population. So that goes back to your first question, which is, well, what do we see in these populations? And the answer, I say, is similarity but differences. That's why it is so important when people start this work to really understand their population. I have seen, I know of an organization, probably more, that have wasted a million dollars simply by creating an intervention and a plan that did not fit or potentially did not fit the population they were going to serve. Okay. All right. Thanks, John. That's very, very helpful. Crispin and Anne, you're also being asked about the role of any patient and family caregiving training, um, and um, perhaps that could be uh, a way in for us to even talk about patient and family engagement in, in your systems. Uh, Crispin, l- let me start with you on that one. 
This isn't something that we have a lot of experience with um, in our work in the last couple of years, but uh, because most of the people that we're working with um, are relatively estranged from their families, and so trying to support reestablishment of those relationships has been part of the um, activity. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks. Anne? Yeah, um, I, I we don't we we engage family members, but um, we we don't have a lot of people who have care in home caregivers. Although Kate Lorig at Stanford has developed a curriculum for in home caregivers that um, you know deals with issues like come going to come up all the time is what do you do when you're angry with somebody or if you've got somebody who is being nasty to you, and because the number one uh, the the most primary reason that um, people who combine older people combined to home get admitted to skilled nursing facilities is that their caregiver burns out. So it's a huge issue. We, it's just not our demographic. Okay. Thanks very much. Catherine, can I um, ask you a question <coughs> that's on my little list here, which is uh, where do you think this work sits uh, as everyone modelly works on um, patient-centered medical home uh, model, particularly uh, in, in the States right now? Well, uh, I think this work um, really does use a lot of the, the great principles of the patient-centered medical home. Um, but what we're seeing organizations do is learn in great depth about one particular subpopulation who is their uh, top most uh, complex or costly population, and then very constructively and creatively uh, transform care to fit that exact population. So I think in that way there's some differences in that it's um, it's not a, a one-size-fit-all um, solution. Um, another major difference, I think, is that in these organizations, and John alluded to this in the, the, the discussion around the elements of what we're seeing people needing to do, there's a whole lot of um, connection into the community. So the, the care uh, program, the care team, is working really hard to identify what are some unmet needs of this uh, the population that they're serving, and then identify out in the community organizations that exist that are there to take care of that need, and working really hard to collaborate with those external organizations. And that feels a little bit of a distinction to me as well. Okay. Uh, thanks. Um, I'm going to ask a kind of a related question, and because uh, somebody also has given me that excuse. Catherine in the chat had said, what are the payer or primary funding sources found to support these varied solutions. John, you did allude to and speak of the need for business models. And uh, Lindsay told me uh, before the program, she gets a question all the time, how can a program for high-risk patients be sustained in a fee-for-service environment? Um, who, who would like to tackle that one? Uh, should, I, should I go back to you, John, for that one? <laughs> well, frame it up again for me, Matt. Say well, exactly I think, yeah, I think there's two different aspects. People are wondering about funding sources, whether you need special funding sources for this kind of thing. And um, do we, you know, is the fee-for-service environment almost anathema to what we're trying to do for high-risk patients right now? Um, 
I would say the following. Uh, I don't worry about the fee-for-service aspect. Again, for me, it's simple. Who's paying the bill? Okay. Now, let's have a conversation with the bill payers about a service that we think is going to be terrific and offer a better model for them. If you can have that conversation, um, then you can start to start to uh, have a dialogue about maybe a potentially different model or a different way to compensate for this. I mean, you know, and the good news is across the world, certainly in the United States, there's a huge movement on this. You know, I think where we at 600 plus organizations are now part of an ACO. So there is a lot of movement going forward. And so what I would simply say is be creative here. If you've got a model that you know is going to work, you can, and you've got some evidence of proof, start going talking to the payers. That's the issue. Don't sit back and be passive on this. The opportunities are there, and they're going to keep coming at us. And what we need to do is be prepared, be ready, be able to actually take this to scale. We haven't really talked about that much, but in our work, one of the big focuses we do is we try to help people go from 25 to 1,000 to whatever their uh, number they're working on. Uh, Crispin mentioned there are like 4,362 people that they have in their high-risk pool that they want to work on. So you've got to think about going to scale. But again, it goes back to having a financial model. I would simply say don't be passive in this work. It can be paid for. We have organizations who are breaking through on that, developing business models. But it's not its not easy. It's easy for me to say it's not easy to get through on that. Okay. Well, we do appreciate your perspective. Um, we're thrilled, of course, to um, offer you this WIHI. And we also do want to mention an interesting program that's coming up here at IHI that's going to really go deep <laughs> with um, some of the, even some of the people that you're hearing from um, today on on the call. Uh, John? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Madge. Uh, caring for complex patients uh, can create complex challenges for providers and, of course, higher costs. Today's WIHI is a good start for to understand this problem, but to accelerate the improvement of care for these high-cost patients with complex needs, IHI invites you to join the Better Health and Lower Cost for Patients with Complex Needs and IHI Collaborative beginning in July 2014. This effort will help you plan your plan and implement comprehensive care designs that serve the needs of your most complex, high-risk, and cost patients, resulting in better outcomes, better care experience, and lower total costs. Whether your organization has already established a program or is just starting this work, our goal is to help you make a positive and sustainable difference for your populations. If it feels like the right time to get started, let IHI help. Visit IHI.org or email info at IHI.org for more information on this great collaborative. All right. Thanks so much, John. And um, I'm going to go around the horn with everybody and uh, get in some final remarks. Um, I want to really, I'm thrilled with the chat today, as I hope many of you are. You've been answering each other's questions and you're very uh, engaged. As many of you know who listen to WIHI regularly, um, this unfortunately is never quite the deep dive that uh, some of you um, might benefit from, but we do get a lot of stuff out there for you to pursue further and we will have all kinds of resources and links available to you to learn more about Stanford Coordinated Care. And Lindsay sent us a bunch of great articles uh, that Vicki Minden, who helps us out here, uh, put together. So uh, fear not, there's plenty more to dig into uh, when you get the slides, the chat, the resources on IHI.org. And if anybody is trying to communicate with any of our guests today, uh, please let us know at info at IHI.org and we can see if we can get some messages relayed and, and make any connections for you. All right, I'm going to go around the horn. Um, any kind of parting sh- uh, thoughts, uh, uh, kind of what you might take away here or um, observations? Catherine, I think I'll start with you. Well, 
I mean, I would say we're we're thrilled with the knowledge base that we've um, developed over the years, and we're just looking so forward to expanding that knowledge with new teams in the future, um, and especially figuring out um, some specific strategies to use with specific populations. All right. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, uh, Crispin. Sure. Um, Just to speak a word on funding, for those of you who are not in the United States, it's just as difficult everywhere else. Um, (laughs) And in Canada, uh, we don't have the same focus on collecting the information about costs, and so still have a great challenge to be able to monitor the costs and be able to show them in a business case. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And Lindsay? Yeah, um, I think it's, uh, John really uh, hit the nail on the head. You have to kind of risk stratify your services and you know, look for who you're saving money for to see who can pay for it because uh, it, we all want to deliver better patient care, and, but not everybody needs the kind of intensive services that, that we've offered, for example. And then in the care situation, um, you know, Crispin and I both emphasized it, start with the patient goals, and, and that's how you gain their trust, and that's how you gain their buy-in and taking care of their own health. All right. Thanks so much. And John? Winnington. Thanks. You know, to me, this is noble work, and I say that because... It works on a vulnerable population who are in a difficult point in their life, and we can do them a great deal of good. And, you know, the key is to develop a financial model that will support your your noble efforts on this. So I love it because it works on a vulnerable population, but at the same time, there are financial models that will drive this, and then that means we can sustain this work over time. Thanks a lot, man. All right. Well, thank you, John Whittington, Catherine Craig, and Lindsay, and Crispin Kantz uh, for joining us. Also, in the background, Corey Seven, uh, director at IHI, who helped mightily uh, put this all together. You've been a great uh, panel and a great series of comments in the chat today, and we thank you for all your engagement. And uh, Jane Rossner also uh, over the wall here, glass here, uh, puts up a few comments on IHI's Facebook page, which is another place you can continue the conversation. Um, Next up on WIHI, our next show, April 10th, 2014, Reclaiming Empathy, Best Practices for Engaging with Patients. The info is on the website right now. I would say empathy. uh, uh, I was thinking about that uh, quite a bit as Ann told uh, the story of her patient and Joe's story was recounted. So it's very related to what we've been talking about today. A reminder, you can download the chat and the slides when you get off the show today. You can look for that option. We always appreciate it if you fill out a brief survey, tell us what worked for you, what we could do better. You're part of WIHI and continuing to make it useful um, to all of you. And check out the website tomorrow morning for all the resources, including the um, audio. Anything confusing at all, info at IHI.org. Great team there. Happy to help you out. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, <clears throat> excuse me, Jane Rosner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and our Northeastern co-op, Tala Algusain. We hope you enjoy some of the music that opens and closes the show, and it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Thanks to our guests. Thanks to our audience today. Today, I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a great day. Thank you.